Chapter 3, The Forgotten Suitcase, Part 2. The door opened, and I fell on my back with a cry of sheer terror. I raised my arms, covering my face to protect it from the hound's teeth. Bloody hell! What's the matter with you, laddie? Leave you on your own for a couple of minutes and you get completely smashed? Understand it's cold and lonely, my boy, but you can't drink in here. Public intoxication, we call it. If somebody found out, the pair of us would be in trouble. I stood up and brushed my coat, hoping to regain some of my dignity. I haven't been drinking, sir. There was this rabid dog barking and pounding on the door. Surely you must have seen it on your way in. Hey, you don't look drunk. You're trying to put one over on me, aren't you? You're hoping to ruin my evening with the missus, is that it? Misery loves company, are they saying? I bet you've been having a rough time. Well, I offered to have you for dinner, so don't you go complaining. I pushed him aside and stuck my head outside. The wind had picked up again. The platform, the rail, and the copse of trees were smothered in snow. No need to get violent. Only came to offer you a copper. Thought you'd be cold and miserable, but I didn't think you'd be delusional. I didn't answer. I didn't even register what he was saying. The thin layer of snow was immaculate. No tracks, not a single trace of the creature. Noticing my distress, the station master sat down on the bench and pulled a flask from his bag. I suppose you could use a drop of liquor in your copper. Don't worry, I won't see anything if you don't. We drank our tea in silence. I couldn't stop thinking about the creature's raucous breath, about its faint, raspy laugh. There was no way I had dreamt the whole thing. It had felt too tangible, too real. The station master noticed my frequent glances towards the door and broke the silence. Look, I'd like to tell you that the station is haunted or something, but truth is, I've never seen or heard anything out of the ordinary. No ghost, no ghouls, no strange creature. Nothing queer or out of place. Why don't you come with me? I'll fix your bed in the guest room and I'll drive you to your parents tomorrow. What do you say? I couldn't accept. It wasn't just a matter of dignity. I needed to prove to myself that I wasn't going insane. I assured him that everything was under control, thanked him for the cup of tea, and wished him a Merry Christmas. Watching him disappear into the night, I promised myself I wouldn't give in to nerves and fancy. I'm not even afraid of dogs. The driver will arrive soon and everything will be fine. It seemed that a long time had passed since the snack on the train, and the cold had roused my appetite. Thankfully, I had packed a tin of biscuits in my suitcase. It is common knowledge that hunger and strong emotions sharpen the senses, and so it was that I found myself looking at my suitcase with some confusion. I had struggled to open it a while ago, but hadn't given that a second thought, especially after the events that followed. At 
first glance, it looked just the same. A dark brown, sturdy leather bag with a brass frame and reinforced corners. Details were difficult to make out under the flickering light of the bare bulb. But I had the overwhelming feeling that something wasn't quite right. The hinges seemed about to give out. The leather was more used than I remembered, and its patina was smeared with reddish stains. I realized the stench I'd attributed to the waiting room was coming from the suitcase. It reeked of rot and putrefaction. There was only one satisfactory explanation. I had taken the wrong suitcase with me. As I replayed the events in my head, the mistake appeared with terrifying clarity. I was in a hurry and focused on my concern for the governess and her pupil. I had grabbed the first suitcase in the compartment without thinking. Since I had arrived first, it was logical that my own luggage shouldn't have been in front of the others. The suitcase I had taken belonged to whoever boarded last. Damn. I had no desire to see that man again. How would he react to my mistake? Oddly, the thought of losing my own suitcase didn't bother me as much as the mere presence of this thing. I examined it more carefully, turning slowly around it without daring to get nearer. The model was similar to mine, which explained the mix-up, but closer scrutiny revealed it was obviously older and of inferior quality, if not downright shabby. The stains seemed to have increased in size, proliferating like a brown lichen. In fact, a thick, slimy liquid was leaking from the bottom of the suitcase. The leather seemed overstretched, ready to burst out of its frame. The more I looked at it, the more it reminded me of a bulbous growth, swollen with pus. A more careful inspection showed that it waxed and waned ever so slightly. Not unlike a breathing abdomen. I was torn between two contradictory impulses. Curiosity tempted me to look inside the suitcase, while a more primitive instinct was forbidding me to move, even to breathe. Only knowing that I was in the same room with this repulsive thing made my skin crawl all over. My reason was telling me that there was nothing to be done except waiting for my driver, or perhaps taking the station master up on his offer. Why would I fear an inanimate object? There was nothing to fret about, and given that it belonged to someone else, nothing of concern to me. It was, after all, a simple container, except I didn't know what was inside. After some deliberations, I decided to put it outside. Didn't popular wisdom say, out of sight, out of mind? refrain from grimacing while holding the moist, sticky handle. Trying to overcome my disgust, I grabbed it and began pulling it towards the door. 
was about halfway to the door when I found myself plunged in darkness. The suitcase had fallen flat and laid somewhere on the floor. I tried to calm my breathing and steady myself before taking a tentative step in the direction of the door. I must have been disoriented because I stepped on the suitcase. My foot made a squelchy sound as though I had tramped through mud. The luggage hissed and sighed, depressing slightly under my foot. I felt a lukewarm liquid soaking up my shoe. Backing away in distress, I fell over. I stumbled to get back up and slipped again on some unknown substance. I tried laughing about my predicament, but I sounded unhinged. I knew I was losing my grip on sanity. As I was groping my way through the dark, my hand brushed against something sticky. It might have been my imagination, but I felt it writhe under my touch. I screamed and drew back my hand as if I had touched hot coals. As one would expect from someone in my situation, there was a lot of crawling and shuffling around in utter confusion. I lost track of all time and wept in the thrall of sheer terror. Eventually, I found a wall and leaned against it, with my heart pounding in my chest and my head throbbing. It was difficult to find my bearings. My eyes got accustomed to the gloom. A ray of dull moonlight was shining under the door. The suitcase was sprawled across the floor, wide open. The clasps must have broken, I told myself. Just as I was watching it, Hoping I could muster the courage to go across the room, the suitcase let out a faint hiss and lurched forward. Horror overtook the remnants of my sanity as I watched, powerless and paralyzed with anguish, the suitcase inching towards me in jerks and spasms, scraping the floor. When cold dread released me from its grip, there came a moment of frenzied alarm and mindless panic. I remembered but little of what happened next. I must have run across the room because I ended up outside in the snow. Once I was at a reasonable distance, I glanced towards the station and saw a black silhouette near the door. My heart leaped, thinking it might be the station master coming back to rescue me from this horror. Better yet, it could be my parents' driver. The dark shape disappeared into the shelter. I'm over here! Don't go in there! For the love of God, please! Don't go. After a short while, the silhouette emerged from the shelter. My initial instinct had proved wrong, and the thing I dreaded most was happening. The shape was holding a suitcase, his suitcase, I assumed, and looking in my direction. Even
even though it was still shrouded in shadows, I felt his gaze on me. Cold sweat dripped along my back. I watched with a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach as the shape began walking towards me. I dared not move for fear of revealing my hiding place. I couldn't be certain, but something about its demeanor reminded me of the man from the train. He had the same grim and ravenous air about him. He jumped from the platform, crossed the railway, and stopped at the edge of the forest. There, he laid down his suitcase. From afar, I could hear metal clinking as he began rummaging inside. I knew this was probably the last opportunity I had to escape this madness, so I ran. I didn't go far. Shrubs and bushes made my progression difficult. I kept stumbling on roots and gravel. My escape ended when I got entangled in a thorn bush. Dark blood sprayed on the snow around me. Struggling only increased my agony. And always behind me, the slow and determined stomp of the creature. A glance above my shoulder crushed my hopes. The shadow was almost upon me, darker than night, silent and monumental. I closed my eyes, waiting for the inevitable blow. Oh, let's get you out of there, laddie. Don't you move a muscle, it'll only make it worse. I don't know what's coming to you, running like that in the forest. At night. He managed to pull me out of the bush without causing me too much pain. I limped behind the old man as he guided me through the trees until we reached a broad path. His sleigh was waiting for us there. Uh, the only good way to travel in this weather. I'll get you home before you know it. I groaned as I climbed inside the sleigh. But it was much more comfortable than it looked, with deep cushions and plush fur lining. Exhausted and sore, I soon fell asleep to the swoosh of the snow under the sleigh. woke up in my bed sometime in the early afternoon on Christmas Day. Contrary to what one might expect, never did I think the whole affair had been a dream. My aching body and the memory of the terror I had felt were enough to convince me. Everything had happened. After a light breakfast, I was informed that a constable was waiting for me in the parlour. My parents had insisted that he come back at a later date, but he had been adamant. I put on a robe and hobbled myself there. He assured me that I wasn't in trouble and didn't need a lawyer. He only wished to talk to me about my train ride. He seemed content and got ready to leave once I identified a picture of the man 
who was sitting next to me. What was this about, Constable? Why couldn't it wait until later? I'm sorry. I really shouldn't discuss any details. Did anything happen to the little girl? There was a long, uncomfortable silence after that. Finally, the constable sighed. I shouldn't tell you any of this. The man was a known murderer. According to various testimonies, he grew agitated shortly after you left. He kept asking the steward for his suitcase. Witnesses said that he went into a frenzy as soon as he realized the suitcase was missing. He threatened the steward and attempted to assault the train manager. It took five passengers, all members of the rugby team, to pin him down. Somehow he managed to free himself from his restraints and jumped from the moving train. He was seen running along the tracks and was hit by a freight train shortly after ten. Constables are still at work, picking up bits and pieces of him all over the railway. I nodded. Something didn't add up. Who followed me into the woods, if not the crazed murderer? I didn't know where to begin, nor how to explain what I had seen to the constable. Did he tell anyone what was inside the suitcase? Hmm, funny, you should ask. Witnesses say he kept muttering nonsense about his instruments and sobbing about leaving his family behind. He worked as a gardener on a Yorkshire estate near Doncaster. The daughter of his employer and her governess went missing. We suspect that he used the suitcase to carry their bodies after cutting them up into pieces. The only way we can ascertain it would be to recover the suitcase. You didn't find it? Did you talk to the station master? Here? Uh, I think not. The position has been vacant for months. You were the only one there last night. We searched the area thoroughly and didn't find anything. fire had almost gone out, and only the faint glow of dying embers remained. Robert didn't come back to his seat after his tale, but went straight to the bar instead. Did you know he had such a good imagination? Maybe scientists aren't so dull after all. It's all a joke to you, isn't it? Don't you take anything seriously? Her outrage came as a surprise. I paused a moment, considering her grievance. Why would anyone take Christmas entertainment seriously? If I had wanted someone to wag their finger at me disapprovingly, I would have attended Christmas Evensong, not a student party. Why invite me to a party only to be a wet blanket? In any other setting, perhaps, I would have answered something to that effect. 
Whether it was because of the near-complete darkness or because of the atmosphere of quasi-religious fervor, I swallowed my pride and ignored her, pointedly. Looking for a more sympathetic ear, I turned my attention elsewhere. Perhaps it was my imagination, although I'm convinced that it was not, but I had the distinct impression that our numbers had grown substantially. I couldn't see all of the other tables, and knew for a fact that the room was rather small. However, there was a particular quality to the silence, an intangible thickness that was almost always consubstantial with a large audience holding its breath. This thought, I realized as quickly as it came to my mind, was absurd, completely irrational. All the same, I couldn't shake off the feeling that I was standing in the middle of a crowd. I examined the faces of the people sitting nearby, trying to remember if I had seen them during dinner. For the most part, their features remained blurry and vague, probably because of the dim light. A nice-looking girl caught my eyes. I couldn't see much of her, to be perfectly honest, only the slim outline of her body, but it was as good a way as any to show Edith I wouldn't let her spoil my night. With a little wave, I beckoned her to come closer. It took a while to get her attention. I couldn't quite believe my eyes once I got a better look at her. It was as if she had stepped out of one of those silent films from a bygone era. She hobbled and tripped her way to my chair, donning a short skirt, boyish hair, and a chunky, close-fitting hat. She seemed quite the looker, a stunner even, despite her slim, almost lanky figure and her old-fashioned clothes. As she got closer, I repressed a shiver. I had a strange, cold feeling. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I knew something was wrong. Perhaps wrong is too strong a word. Odd would probably be more appropriate. She was almost upon me when I tried to stand up and faltered. I assumed the cause of my malaise to be a combination of drowsiness and inebriation. To make things worse, a cold draught snuffed the table's last remaining candle. I tried to steady myself on the table, but my hands failed to grasp anything. The whole room began whirling around me. A wave of nausea hit, and for a short, unsettling moment, I felt as one feels when tipping one's chair too far back, suspended in space, waiting for the world to come back to normal or to tip over and crash. I was prevented to fall over by a strong, icy grip. Although I was grateful for the assistance, something about feeling these fingers on my skin made me uncomfortable. I shuddered and sat back in my chair. Something as smooth and soft as skin, but cold and brittle like ice brushed against my face. I was reminded of the icy kiss of the snow woman in Algy's story. This was the moment, to the extent it is possible to determine it with precision, that I understood how my friends had come to consider their own tales as true. Some part of me still had doubts about the veracity of such fanciful notions. Confusing one's perceptions with reality is indicative of a weaker intellect, just as questioning one's senses and first impression is the prerogative of great minds. A gust of wind rekindled the fire, filling the room with a warm golden light. I turned around to thank the person who had stopped my fall. There was nobody in my close vicinity that could have helped me. I looked for the lanky, boyish girl I intended to charm. I doubted any one of the fairer sex could have such a strong grip, but I had always thought it best to examine the facts before making unwarranted assumptions and drawing conclusions. 
The fact was, she was sitting a good ten feet from me, her face half hidden under her flapper hat. I puzzled over what had just happened, looking for an explanation, when she smiled at me. What I saw, or more accurately, what I thought I saw, I ascribed to the influence of all the tales I had heard. Her ghastly grin gaped, a dark hole lined with ivory teeth. Where her eyes should have been, inky black hollows opened to endless space. The skull cocked to the side, examining me with curiosity. I blinked and she looked like a dapper young woman again. Since I knew I couldn't rely on my bewildered senses, I decided getting Edith's opinion could settle my doubts and, hopefully, assuage my growing fear. Edith, look at this girl. Can you see anything out of the ordinary? What is it? I'm trying to listen to the end of the story. Look at her. There's something wrong with her face. What girl? What are you talking about? I don't see any... I got up, straining my neck to catch another glimpse of the girl. The audience soon quieted down, but before I could seize the opportunity to get another look at her, I heard Edith's name being called and watched as she strode toward the stage. Although I didn't forget about the incident, I focused on the tale, listening as the first words poured from her, tumbling over each other. Chapter 3, The Forgotten Suitcase, Part 2, featured Kristin Holland as Robert, the station master and the constable, Michael Garamoni as Montague, Elizabeth Plant as Edith, and Peter Coates as the announcer. Sound design by Jamie Stoffer from JLS Audio. The Midnight Carols was created by Vincent Robert Nicou. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to tune in next week for a new tale of terror.